Well, good morning and uh, welcome again to uh, Christ the King. We're going to continue our look at First Peter, and I hope you've enjoyed this. I've had uh, several of you have, have told me how much uh, you've enjoyed this study in First Peter. We're going to continue uh, looking at it today. And so if you have your scriptures with you, you can take them out and open to the, to the book of First Peter. We're going to read uh, part of the first chapter starting in verse 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there's an insert in your bulletin, and so you can follow along, and I would suggest you do that. It'll certainly help you as we, uh, as we take a look at this beautiful letter that Peter wrote. Uh, now hear God's word, starting in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile." knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your hope and faith are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, As we've been looking at this, this group of people in Asia Minor, what is today now Turkey, these series of churches that were in that area were suffering uh, under persecution. It was not, uh, at least scholars say it was not, the imperial persecution of Rome that came two, three years later but an earlier persecution that was more local and more relational. In other words, you had families where maybe a husband uh, or a wife became a Christian and the children and the father or the children and the mother were not Christians. And so you had this internal tension building up in communities of uh, persecution and broken relationships. And this is what Peter is trying to get across to this audience, and remember the audience was probably, best we can tell, a mixed audience of Jews who were dispersed, but were believers. They were dispersed from from Israel and from Judah, 
uh, and uh, probably Gentile converts. So we don't want to say there were only Jews. We don't want to say there were only Gentiles. They were just people who were either living in true exile, they had lost their homes, or they were people who metaphorically were living in exile as we all do. See, although we're citizens of the United States, we are still to consider ourselves pilgrims and exiles living in a foreign land. And every citizen of every country who is a Christian has to live in that tension. And so Peter is is giving them instructions on how to live successfully in the tension that we all feel, the tension of, of some level of persecution. Maybe severe, like what we're seeing in places uh, like northern Iraq and eastern Syria, where the Christians are literally losing their lives. Uh, it could be uh, just cultural pressure, like we feel in the West, where to be a Christian is kind of... You know, people, did you know that the statistics say 75% of people that are polled would rather live next door to a pagan than to an evangelical Christian? Isn't that interesting? They see us as being more wacky <laughs> than pagans are. So there's some sense in which there's, a, there's this, this cloud that sits over us. And even in the West, as privileged as we are in the West, in the Christian church, uh, those days may be coming to a close. So we don't know what we're facing, and this is a good time for us to bear down on the truth of what God has for us. Last week, we talked about hope. This week, we're going to talk about holiness. And uh, week after next, we're going to talk about the high cost of redemption. I thought I could do it all at one time, and I just I have, wasn't able to cover it all last week. I apologize. So I'm going to do a little bit from hope and then talk about what holiness is, which I hope you all will listen to because I think it can help you. have so many misconceptions about what holiness uh, is. And so uh, last week we talked about hope, uh, preparing your mind. And uh, verse 13 is very interesting. It says that we are to prepare our mind. Uh, literally in Greek, it says, gird up your loins. It says, in other words, take your robes that these people wore long robes, and tuck them into your belt and get going. Run the race. Take an action. Take a step. Cross the threshold from, from just kind of thinking about it to going forward. Take action. Prepare your mind. This is an act. Then he says, being sober-minded. And again, he uses a word that literally means don't be drunk, to be truly sober. But but what it actually is, he's not talking about alcohol. He's talking about being in self-control. In other words, you've made a decision to go forward and now you're going to actually use your willpower to stay in control, to, to fight the battle daily. This is an ongoing thing. And let me, let me be very honest with you folks. You're going to fight that battle the rest of your life. Now, maybe not the same battle. We fight battles when we're younger, when we're uh, in our teen years or our young adulthood. We fight completely different battles. But when we get older, you fight other battles. And when you're aged, you fight a whole other set of battles. But there's going to be an ongoing effort that is going to be required to continue thinking, not just mentally, not just intellectually, but thinking deeply in your heart about what it means to be a Christian. What does that mean? And unfortunately, when the world looks at us, folks, uh, especially now, I think today, uh, people are looking at the church and they're wanting to know, is it real? 
Is it true? Is there truth? And they're not talking about simply truth with respect to content. I mean, we can prove a lot of things are true. But are they actually seeing that the truth has an effect on us and changes us from the inside out so that we truly are different, transformed? So be sober-minded. He says, set your, your hope, that's the future, on the grace of God that will be revealed in Jesus Christ. Christianity is all about grace. It is not about merit. You can't even mix the two. You can't put one drop of merit into your salvation or you're no longer talking about salvation, right? You're talking about something else. And that's okay. If you want to talk about something else, if you want to say it's me and God cooperating together for my salvation, that's fine. But understand that you're going against the preponderance of the evidence in Scripture. Scripture says we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. However, verse 10 says, it was for a purpose, so that we could be conformed to the image of Christ. And so our actions must follow. And what we see in churches are people who claim to be Christians but act otherwise. Now on Sunday morning here at Christ the King, all of you are going to act like Christians. If you don't, we will ask you to leave. Because we are uncomfortable with anybody that's really being honest. I mean, you get the picture? It, this should be the one place you could come and let your hair down and say, you know what, I'm failing. I'm really struggling. And I'm struggling with these three things. But most of us would run screaming out the door if you told us the truth. But if you're honest, and, you, and I'm honest with you, and sometimes I get, I get chided for it because people say, we don't want to hear that about our pastor. We want our pastor to be really holy. Well, I am, and more than you. But I'm still struggling. And so I know that if I'm struggling, somebody as sanctified and unbelievably holy as me, I know that you are. All right, it's tongue-in-cheek. I'm just kidding, folks. But listen, we're all struggling. We've, you're going to be doing this, so you have to set your hope on the grace that would be revealed. And then lastly, we talked about keeping an, earn, an eternal perspective. Christianity is a religion that demands that you look backward, present, and forward. It, it requires you to live in all of time. Whatever time is, it requires you to live in all of those places, past, present, and future. The, what Jesus did on the cross has got to be as real to you as today's dinner here. As real as your meal that you're going to eat and feed yourself with. It's got to be that real. And at the same time, you've got to be able to take one eye and look into eternity and bring all of that future glory back, that grace back into the present. You've got to be able to look back into the past at the cross and bring that to the present and live every day as if both of those things are absolutely true. And if you do, it'll change. You'll be a completely different person in your life. And let me tell you, folks, this, this world right now is begging for Christians that will do that. Will you do it? Every week I ask you, will you do it? I'm asking you to do it. At least let's start in our little church. I can't tell, I don't know what they're doing across the street. Don't really care. But what we're doing here can matter. So set your 
uh, hope on the grace that will be. And so those are, those are the, the ideas of hope. Hope for the Christian is not, listen, not wishful thinking. The word for hope means to hope for a certain, absolutely certain future. It will come to pass. So the only difference between hope and realization is that it's future, but it is coming. And the metaphor I've used in the past is like a tidal wave. That tidal wave happened at the resurrection and it's on its way. It's still out there somewhere. We don't know where it is in the timeline and neither does uh, the late night TV guys. Nobody knows when that day is. Jesus said we don't know the day and the time. And so we're to live our lives as if it's going to happen imminently, immediately. And we're supposed to live our lives as if it's going to happen in two million years. Either way, we're to be consistent in our lives. And that's what he's talking about in this next section about holiness. Holiness, where the other, this first verse 13 is about preparing your mind, getting your mind. This one is about shaping your heart, your affections, what you love. And I don't really want you to think in terms of mind being one thing and heart being a separate thing. They are integrally connected. In fact, you cannot disconnect them. That was Greek dualism. But in Hebrew thought, in ancient Near East thinking, heart, Mind, soul, body, all integrated, all one thing. That's why when you die and you're in heaven, disembodied, it says that we are groaning for the resurrection. We are longing to be reunited with our body because human beings were not meant to be disembodied spirits. We were meant to live in our bodies. And that's the whole idea of the resurrection. And so holiness is shaping the heart. It's talking about identity, whereas the other was preparing our mind. A new way of thinking, but the, this one is preparing the hearts. Where do you set your affections? And Peter is very... Uh, I mean, the guy's amazing. For a fisherman to be able to write this, can you imagine what kind of a mind he must have had? I, I understand that... He was inspired by the Holy Spirit. But think about it, folks. This is just a man who who probably, for all we know, he was illiterate. And he was dictating his letter to an amanuensis, to a scribe who was writing it for him. We think he was Silas. And so Peter is just telling his experience. He's using deep, deep theology. And now he's going to talk about holiness. What is holiness? Uh... Let me tread lightly, but I'm going to stomp on you at the same time. Holiness, the word holiness in Greek is a very common word. It's called hagias. And it means to be separate, to be separated. Okay? Uh, Separate in who we are, separate by virtue of our identity. It's separate by virtue of identity. In other words, God looked down on all the world and He said, I choose Abraham and all of his children. And He separated Abraham and all of his progeny, all of his children, and said, these people, this whole group of people, are holy. Now, how many of them really acted holy? Say none. Go ahead. None. None of, them, none of them acted holy, but how many of them were holy? All of them were holy because they had been separated, consecrated, 
chosen, if you will, elect, if you will. They had been carved out from all of humanity by virtue of who they were, and they were separated. And it was not based on ethnicity. It was based on their trust and faith in, 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 the, in the Redeemer, the Messiah. When, when God sent Moses into Israel, the, the people that left were a very mixed congregation. They were, in fact, the 12 tribes, but they included many, many Gentiles, even some Egyptians that had glommed on to them by faith. And when they got to uh, Canaan, there were people that immediately began getting added to this group. People like Rahab and everybody that belonged to Rahab. All of her family. That's why we baptize our children, folks. I know that that's foreign to many of you, but it's the reason we include our children in the covenant is because they belong in the covenant. They don't belong on the outside. They belong inside. And then at some point as they grow older and they understand their faith and they claim their faith for their own, we bring them to the table. We bring them to the, to the Lord's body and blood. Now that's our way. That's how we do it in the Presbyterian church. Holiness is being separated by virtue of who you are. And then on top of that, over that, like an umbrella, holiness is who picks you. Who separates you? And who separated you? The one who by very definition is holy in and of himself. His very nature is holy. And so we're going to look at three things. Real quickly, we can do this quickly. Uh, We're going to look at, first of all, uh, a new relationship. Secondly, a new motive. And thirdly, the new identity. A new relationship, a new motive, and a new identity. Look very quickly at this first verse, 14, the first section. He says, as children of obedience. The, literally, it says in the Greek, children of obedience. And it's, a, it's actually a Greek version of a Hebraism that means uh, that God is your father. Now, some scholars, and I read all the commentaries, my head's still spinning from reading all of these things. Some scholars claim that we are children of obedience. In other words, we're defined by our behavior. And uh, I already don't like that, do you? But, but the better scholars, and of course, I only follow the very best ones, and I'm happy to tell you who they are, uh, since you may not know. Uh, I'm kidding. It's okay to laugh. Uh, the, the better scholars, in all seriousness, uh, say that we should stick with the literal translation and that it is God as Father. In other words, he's saying children of obedience means children who obey their Father. Are you with me? Children of obedience by its own means nothing. But bring it into the relational. Every one of you either were a child or have children. And you know what it is to have children who obey. There's a special relationship. What happens when your children disobey? What happens to the relationship? Does it become strained? Now, I would argue that the relationship's never broken, even if they really get naughty. If they do, there's probably something wrong with the parent, not the child. But certainly relationships can be strained by disobedience. 
And so as children of obedience, we're seeing a new relationship. God is our Father. Now remember, in theology, we distinguish between God as Father of all humanity. You know that He is, right? Yes? He's the Father of all humanity by virtue of His being the Creator of all humanity. But He is Father in a different sense to those of His who are His children. And so in formal theology, we make a distinction between God as Father of all humanity and God as Father of His particular people, the same way that we could say uh, George Washington is Father of America. You get it, right? He's the Father of America, but George Washington's not my father. My ancestors weren't even here. And he was definitely not where they were. So there was no chance that we could have a biological connection with George Washington. You follow what I'm saying? So there's a difference. There's a new relationship. Listen to what Paul said in his letter to the Romans, very familiar. You did not receive the spirit of slavery, but the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, listen to this, one of the most incredible statements in all the Bible, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Do you see how both Peter and Paul tie our mutual suffering that we have in this life to our identity with Christ and our relationship with Christ as our Father. It's absolutely wonderful. We have a new relationship. Look at the second one, a new motive. This is the second part uh, of this this verse 14. It's what we would call 14b. It's the second part. He says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Conformed is to be shaped. That's why I I named this this section Shaping the Heart. Conforming is shaping like you would carve a sculpture or perhaps pour uh, plaster into a mold to shape it. Okay, so carving, shaping. In other words, there's some work that's going on. Being conformed is not something you do bang one time, okay, now I'm conformed. Conforming is continual shaping. Now, I'm not the man I was when I first became a Christian. And it's a good thing. Uh, You wouldn't like me uh, then. And all of you like me now. No, of course. You you know, we we marry somebody and, and over the years, unless something's wrong with the marriage, as as time goes on, you, you, you as you conform, as you shape to one another, your love should grow deeper. You fall more in love. You quit looking at outside looks and you start looking inside to the person and you fall more and more in love. And you know that people that have long and healthy marriages, when they get to the end of their ages, uh, they're more in love than they were before and they grieve more deeply than they would have if their marriage had ended earlier. And There's just a whole different dynamic. Something to look forward to, actually. And so there's a conforming that Peter and Paul talked about. Paul said we're to conform our minds. We're we're to think differently and shape our hearts differently. And what Peter says here, we're to be conformed to not 
to the passions of our former ignorance. And here he used another, not, I didn't want to do a Greek uh, lesson, vocabulary lesson, but there's a couple words in Greek you should know. Here's one of them. It's called epithemia. And every one of you should know epithemia. And, and in your Bible, it's, it's translated very often as lust. The old uh, King James Version, lust. And lust immediately brings uh, bad imagery with it. It brings sexual imagery with it and things like that. But the word epithemia doesn't mean lust like sexual lust. It just means over-desire. The little prefix epi means over and thumia is desire. Epithemia, over-desire. It's wanting something too much. And you can want bad things too much, yes? But you can also want good things too much. Well, I mean, like chocolate. Is chocolate bad in and of itself? Of course not. But if you eat, you know, the whole bag of chocolate, what happens to you? Like, you know, you notice there's one bag missing back there. <laughs> now, if you eat a bag of chocolate, you get sick. If you eat just a couple pieces, it's nice. It's okay, right? Okay, so you can have epithemia. It's over-desire. It's almost like an addiction. In fact, some people have said it's like an addiction and that if you lost it, you would lose the will to live. This is what Dr. Tim Keller says. Augustine, in his Confessions, talks about disordered love. And many scholars, including Jonathan Edwards and Tim Keller and others, have written about this disordered love. Augustine said you can love things too much, good things and bad things. He loved a pair. Too much. He picked the pear. He stole the pear. And then he took it and he says, why did I do it? I don't even want it. And he threw the pear away. He didn't even eat the pear. And it was that that struck his conscience. You see, it was the epithemia, the over-desire to break God's law that shook Augustine to his core and later led to his conversion. Epithemia can be love for good things, love for bad things, but it's an over-love, it's over-desire, it's like addiction and like a lust. Tim Keller says this, Augustine taught that we are, and if you listen to this, folks, this can change the way you experience your Christianity. It did for me, so I'm going to read it a couple times. Listen carefully, because I know if you're like, if you're like me, you've been doing it backwards for a long time. Listen carefully, see if you get it. Some of you will, some of you won't. Augustine taught that we are most fundamentally shaped not by what we believe or think. You with me? But rather by what we love. And love, in other words, is the, is the outworking of what you think and what you believe. Do, do you follow what I'm saying? You can think one thing, but you don't love it. You can believe something, but you don't love it. But if you think it, and you believe it, and you love it, now it's got you and you've got it. Yes? You with me? Richard Pratt used to tell us, think right, do right, be right. You with me? Think right. I know I'm asking a lot of you this morning. Listen. Think right, do right, be right. How many of you, don't raise your hands, we don't even want to do that this morning. How many of you think that's a good, good plan for your life? Think right, do right, be right. 
If you do, that is not Christianity, that is something else. That's every other religion. On the other hand, if you turn them around and you say, be right, think right, do right, now you're talking about Christianity. Identity, who you are, precedes what you do. Transformation comes first. Born again comes first. New nature comes first. And if you can look down inside your heart, and even with all the mixed up emotions we have and sin and all the other junk in there, but if you know that Jesus Christ is your only hope, if you're trusting Him every day, both for repentance and obedience, if you're looking to Him with all the love that's in you and you're thinking, you know, Jesus, I love you and I could not do this without you, then you can say, I'm right. I am right. Be right. Then... Conform the thinking. Then do right. Be right. Think right. Do right. That's Christianity. Think right. Do right. Be right. Is Pharisaism. You with me? Be right. Think right. Do right. Is Christianity. Got it? All right. It's having your passions. Peter says don't. Have your passions aligned this way. Realign your passions. Think differently because now you are different. Think differently and do differently because you're born again. He says it. You've been born again. You have a new nature. If you're a, new, if you're a Christian, you are not a sinner by nature. You are a sinner because you sin, but you're not by nature a sinner any longer. You have a new nature, yes? Behold, all things have passed away. All things are new, Paul said. And folks, if that's what you resort to, when you're struggling with sin, look, when I'm struggling with sin, I know I'm going to lose if I use my willpower because I like chocolate chip cookies way too much. I know, and I'm using a trite example, but really, if you can't even pass up a chocolate chip cookie, what hope do you think you're going to have with some of the most serious things like anger, and entitlement, and unforgiveness. Not even to mention the ones that everybody like sex and other things like that. Never mind those. Just the, just the really bad gossip. What about those? Look, if we can't even pass up too much food to eat, how are we going to deal with these things over here? We can't deal with them on our own willpower. But if you're resorting to who you are and you're saying, you know what? Okay, here I am, I'm faced with this sin. And Chuck preached an amazing sermon Sunday. And he told me I needed to think differently about this sin. Uh, I, I want to serve my Lord who loves me and has changed me. I'm going to pass this by. Now, now you may still fall because we still live in this body and it's all, got all kinds of problems. But the chance of actually... Serving Christ and doing what is right is there. And the power of Holy Spirit is there. And if you resort to your new nature and you succeed, who gets the glory? Who gets the glory? Holy Spirit gets the glory. New nature gets the glory. Jesus gets the glory. Father gets the glory. If you just happen to be one of those people, like my dad, who can pass up a chocolate chip cookie with no problem. He likes them as much as me, but he has more discipline. I can't stand it. Is he here today? Yes, he is. My dad's the most disciplined person you ever met. And he, he'll pass up a chocolate chip cookie. I go, Dad, what's wrong with you? Can I have yours? 
So you get the picture. I mean, if you happen to be one of those people that's really good with willpower, you know, you smoke for 30 years, and ah, I'm going to quit smoking, and great for you. But what if you're like me? Maybe what if you're like you and your willpower is not that good? Your only hope is to resort to another power. And Christianity is all about that. Even for those that have willpower, they struggle with a whole other set of issues, don't they? For those of us that are weak, our weakness can become strength and we're okay. But for those of you that are strong and you can resist, now you have to fight self-reliance. Amen? Self-reliance can be as bad a problem. Okay. Augustine taught that we are most fundamentally shaped, listen folks, by, this is Tim Keller, not by what we believe or think or even do, I love that, but by what we love. Because you can think, do, and all that other stuff and and still not love it, you can resist, but when you love something, you can hardly stop yourself. And this is where the struggles are. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. says, with everything you are. And then you have your, your, your priorities straight, if you want to use that uh, expression. And Christ becomes not first, but central. Let me say it again. Christ is not first in a list of things, but central to everything. Do you see the difference? If you say God is first, family second, church third, fourth, fifth, then you have a a scale of being that is going to cause you trouble. But if instead you say no, Christ is central to everything. Everything is out there. Because sometimes family has to come first. Yes, folks? Sometimes family is first. Sometimes church takes precedence. When I ask my session to come to a session meeting, I'm asking them to choose me and the session meeting over their family. And a sacrifice has to be made. Do you see where the problems can lie? So rather than saying one, two, three, four, let's say Christ is central to everything I do and let the chips fall where they may in my life, but He's still central. So if I have to take a little bit of time away from work so that I can spend it with my family, Christ is still Lord of both my work and my family. Yes? Get it? Okay. And finally, uh, we looked at the, the, the new relationship, the new motive. Now we're going to look at the new identity. And I'll do this quickly. As he who called you is holy, you be holy. What he's doing is he's quoting about four or five specific verses in the Old Testament that referred to Israel. He's saying to the Gentiles in that group of the audience, you are the same as Old Testament Israel. You're on equal footing with them. You're holy. I've called you to be holy just like I called them to be holy. So there is a new, in the New Testament, there is a new humanity in view. There's not ethnic Israel and the Gentiles, everybody else. No, there is one new humanity, and that one new humanity is made up of both Jews and Gentiles, and they stand on equal footing before the Lord. They always have, they always will. There's no distinction. Dr. Edmund Clowney says this, listen carefully, this is so important and then we'll finish. Separated from the nations by the presence of God in their midst, the purity that God's presence demanded was symbolized 
by the elaborate ceremonies of washing and cleansing. Do you see that holiness, let me repeat it, holiness is not primarily about behavior. Holiness is primarily about your new relationship and your new identity. Who is living amongst you or in the New Testament? Who's living in you, inside of you? And it's that reality, folks, that changes your behavior. The reason that there are all those dietary laws and cleanliness laws and all of those things in the Old Testament was because God was living among them and they were separated from the nations. And so He gave them all these codes. We don't have time to go into all of that, but the codes were simply to demonstrate their separatedness, their holiness. This is why Jesus could have the audacity to come in and say to the Pharisees, no, you don't have to wash your hands ceremonially in order to be clean. You have to be clean first. They had had turned it upside down and it's exactly what we do, folks. We turn it upside down. We make the externals what makes us, what we do, who we are, instead of who we are, what we do. And there's all the difference in the world, my friends. And as I've been saying week by week, if you're living the other way, that's why Christianity is so hard and so odious. Because you can't keep the rules. And every day you live in fear and regret and heartache. I do. And there's a better way. They were to do the the purity laws because God was among them. He was their God. They were holy. Not in order to become holy. Do you get it? not in order to become something, they're already that. Because He lives among them, their behavior would be different. Do you remember, you know, when when you were a kid, I don't know, maybe not, uh, you know, you would do all kinds of things as long as what? Nobody's looking. But when somebody's looking, you totally change. Uh, You know, if you're normal. This is what we're talking about here. God is in our midst and therefore we're different because He's with us. We're holy. Do you see? All the difference in the world. His people were identifying. Let me just say this and we'll close. I'm sorry, I went a little bit long and I apologize for that. When we think of purity, folks, when we think of holiness or purity, we think of it this way. The absence of something. If your clothes are dirty, what do you do? You wash them to get what? The dirt out. That's how we think of cleanliness or holiness. But with God, it is completely the opposite. With us, we think it's the absence of something. With God, it's the presence of something that makes it holy. It's His presence that makes holy. Do you know that when Jesus walked in the earth, it, one of the, if you take the, like we did in theology class Monday night, if you go up 30,000 feet and you look down at the whole Bible, you see Jesus doing all these amazing things. Cleansing the leper, yes? Raising the dead. Touching women who had issues of blood. Uh, healing blind people. Uh, consorting. 
literally consorting. I mean, he was out there having parties and stuff with prostitutes and tax collectors. He was going to their house. They were eating and drinking together. They were having social interaction. A prostitute even came and knelt at Jesus' feet and let her hair down and washed his feet, which was amazingly suggestive. And it it just threw everybody into a tizzy. And do you know that in the law, in the old purity laws, all of those things were forbidden? Because for a holy thing to touch an unholy, what happened? The holy thing became unholy. It became unclean. You know? If a holy article touched an unholy article, the, unholy, the holy article became unclean. Until Jesus. And scholars have written about this. It it, it threw everybody, it threw the religious scholars of his day totally into confusion because Jesus would go up to a leper that should have made him unclean and he touched them and they became clean. Jesus went to a funeral and he touches the the dead body of the widow of Nain's wife or son and he rises from the dead and the touching of that dead body should have made Jesus unclean but instead it gives Jesus life or it gives the dead man life. Excuse me. Do you see what's happening? The reversal now that Jesus came, the holy makes unholy clean. Clean makes unclean clean. Living makes the dead live rather than bringing death. Ravi Zacharias said this, listen, Jesus did not come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people live. And there's all the difference in the world, folks. If he came to make bad people good, then it's just religion. But if he made dead people live, now you're talking about God Almighty resurrecting and giving new birth to each one of us so that we can be holy to the Lord even as he is holy. Not just in our behavior, but in who we are. And yes, it should change your behavior. Yes, you should be very scrupulous about what you do. That doesn't even need to be said. On the cross, on the cross, the clean, the pure, the holy became unclean, impure, and yet he remained holy. And his sacrifice went up to the Lord. And God forgave you and I of our uncleanliness, of our impurity, of our sin, by laying it all on him. All on him. And what we ask is that you will trust him. And I pray you will trust him today with your life. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for your glorious son, Uh, Jesus Christ, and we ask, please, uh, for his sake, that you would burn these things deeply into our hearts. Uh, Help us prepare our minds to shape our hearts and to find our, our new relationship, our new identity, our new motives in you and in our love for you. Please help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.